Kings chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Just a word uh, in terms of what is preceded. The last time we were in uh, 1 Kings, Pastor Rob preached to us from chapter 6, which is the description of the uh, building of the uh, temple proper uh, and uh, the materials that it was made with. We come in chapter 7 to the description of Solomon's building of his own home and the buildings that were associated with his home might consider it to be a government complex kind of a situation. Um, And then uh, we aren't going to cover this tonight, but uh, in chapter 7, verses 13, through the rest of chapter 7, you have the continuation of the description of the building of the those things that were in the, the temple, the furniture of the temple. And so uh, tonight we're going to look at uh, this passage, uh, 1 through 12, that is kind of sandwiched in the middle of the description of the building of the temple and try to get our minds around uh, why it is that the Holy Spirit has revealed Solomon's uh, dwelling to in, in the way that he has um, right here in the middle of the description of the temple. So uh, hear the word of God. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, and its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, and it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. And there were window frames in, the, in three rows and window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames and window was opposite window in three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 30 cubits. And there was a porch in front front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. He made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. And it was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. And his own house where where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws back and front, even from the foundation to the coping, and from outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, of eight and ten cubits. And above were costly stones cut according to measurement and cedar. And the great court had three courses of cut stone all around, and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. So ends the reading. 
of God's word. Let us pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, we approach it uh, by means of your spirit in humility. We, we recognize that it is you who have revealed these things for a purpose. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand and to grow closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, through it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone has said that the book of 1 Kings is, uh, actually the book of Kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, is about Israel's revolt against God. Kings begins with Solomon's reign, and it tells us about the subsequent kings that followed Solomon, most of whom were not godly and led the people of Israel into idolatry, both in the northern kingdom primarily and in the southern kingdom as well. And then Kings ends with a description of the destruction of Jerusalem and the final captivity of Judah. Kings was written during the exile, and uh, the book of Kings asks this question, Has God failed? Has God failed to accomplish his purpose for his people? That is a question that many people even ask themselves today about the world that God created. Has God failed? It may seem as though he doesn't hear. It may seem as though God is unresponsive. It may seem that way especially to us when our lives take unpleasant turns and we are surrounded with unhappiness and difficulty. Israel was in exile at the time of the writing of Kings. And so the book of Kings is written to tell God's people that God has not failed. He has not failed to protect his people. He has not failed to uh, protect and to keep his promise to his people. It is Israel who has failed. And here in Kings, we find the record of Israel's failure. And Israel failed against the setting or a backdrop of great blessing. And if we can think in terms of a parallel to the first establishment of establishment of man in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were given many and great blessings. They had everything that they possibly needed provided for them by God. And so Solomon here begins his reign with the great blessing of God upon his life. And the people of Israel had experienced uh, God's blessing. And yet, uh, through in Solomon's own life, we see that he uh, later turns away from the Lord to worship idols. And uh, we see the kings that follow him doing similarly. And so we're presented then in chapters 6 and 7 with a description of Solomon's building of two houses, God's house and Solomon's house. And these chapters... Uh, have much to say to us 
though it, it does not seem evident, maybe upon first reading. And uh, we're reminded that the Apostle Paul has said that all of Scripture is profitable. And as we read this passage and the description that seems so foreign to us of uh, some of the features of the buildings that uh, Solomon built, uh, it is uh, good to be reminded that God has given us this passage of Scripture for our edification and for our sanctification and growth and grace. God had promised the people of Israel, uh, the descendants of Abraham, that he would uh, bring them into the promised land. And he promised them a rest, a settled state, a state uh, that uh, would be characterized by blessing, prosperity, and joy. And under Solomon's reign, these blessings came upon the people of Israel. And we read in chapters 4 of 1 Kings, these verses, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. And then in uh, verse 25, a little later in chapter 4, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Indeed, it is true that God had bestowed great blessing upon Solomon. He had situated him with, uh, with much wealth and uh, the reputation of great wisdom. And so the people of Israel received blessing because of the blessing that God had given to Solomon. The account of Solomon's reign then is found in chapters 3 through 11. And chapter 3 of Kings begins with the mention of Solomon's marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh. And chapter 11 begins uh, with these words, Solomon loved many foreign women. And this is uh, uh, tipping us off to the fact of Solomon's apostasy. So in chapters 6 and 7 and 8, we find sort of the middle part of chapters 3 through 11. 6, 7, and 8. 6, the building of the temple proper. 7, Solomon's house and the completion of the temple. And then chapter 8, the dedication of the temple. These chapters about the temple and of Solomon's house in the same area lie at the very heart of chapters 3 through 11. They give us the center of it. And so then uh, I'd like for us to notice, first of all, something about chronology, which isn't mentioned in the verses that I read as a text, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 7, but is mentioned in chapter 6, verse 1. And I think it's important for us to take note of this. So If you would, turn with me to chapter 6, verse 1. We read, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. 
This chronological reference is important. The author of Kings links the beginning of the building of the temple to the date of the Exodus. And he says that it was in the 480th year after the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt that Solomon began to build. Ralph Davis asked the question in his uh, writing on this chapter, he asked the question, why is this important? And he answers his own question in these words. The en- because it marks the inauguration of a new era. That is, the building of the temple by Solomon as a permanent, uh, as it were, the permanent dwelling place of the people of God. This marks the inauguration of a new era. The end of 430 years in Egypt marked the end of bondage and celebrated the gift of freedom. 1 Kings 6.1 is both similar and different. The end of the 480 years since the Exodus marks the end of the wandering and celebrates the gift of rest. End of quote. And so it is that uh, uh, Ralph Davis is drawing attention to the fact that these years of Solomon's building, the building of the temple, the building of his own uh, government, uh, his own dwelling place and other dwellings associated with it, form uh, the end of the period of Exodus, wilderness wanderings, and the dwelling in the land, though somewhat insecurely. So the completion of the temple in verses in, in chapters six and seven, the completion of the temple complex is the completion of the work of God with the people of Israel that he be, that began in the Exodus. And so it is the bookend, as it were, Uh, the end of one period and the inauguration of a new period. And when we consider the glory of the temple and the way in which it was uh, constructed and all of the walls and ceilings and floors lined uh, in the uh, innermost room and in the uh, sanctuary, lined with pure gold, you have something of a reflection of the glory of God. And Pastor Rob Uh, beautifully uh, brought that out, the splendor of the glory of God in that temple, pointing us ahead to something of the glory of God that exists in God's God's own uh, being and will be brought to consummation in the final uh, resurrection of the dead. Christ himself as King and Lord exists in a glorified humanity and is uh, dwelling in glory. And it is God's purpose that we would dwell with him and that we would be fellow heirs with him of glory. And so the temple is is a mark of uh, the end of the period of exodus, the end of the period of wanderings, the end of the period of living in the land insecurely, and the security of God's people, the rest of God's people, the prosperity of God's people, 
pointing us to that rest which is ours in Christ Jesus himself. And so the completion of the temple complex is, the, uh, is that which is, in a sense, for the Old Testament era of which we're looking at, is, is the uh, uh, final eschatology. It's the final, final gift of glory. It's the final gift of rest that the God had intended when he promised Abraham that he would give them that land. The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, you remember throughout Israel's history, uh, during their wilderness wanderings, uh, the tabernacle was taken down uh, and it was moved about and it was set back up from place to place. And even after the settlement in Israel, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle were often separated and moved about from place to place. During Samuel's judgment, the ark was at Kiriath-Jirim, and the tabernacle at Shiloh. During Saul's kingship, the ark was at Kiriath-Jirim, and the tabernacle at Nob. During David's reign, the ark was in Jerusalem, and the tabernacle at Gibeon. Israel, as a nation, dwelt very insecurely. Neither the land nor the people experienced rest or peace until David conquered his enemies and brought them into subjection to Israel. And you remember that David wasn't allowed to build the final temple because he was a man of war, and it was because of that that the nations around were brought into subjection. Only then is Solomon, his son, allowed to build the temple. So it's interesting that all of redemptive history for the people of Israel from the Exodus moving forward points toward this great day of settlement and of rest in which the people of God would enjoy prosperity and the blessings of God under a king of peace. And in Exodus chapter 15 in the Song of Moses, we Remember that Moses said these words, speaking to the Lord, he says, You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So right after the Exodus, Moses is saying these words, You, O Lord, will plant them on your mountain. What is happening under Solomon is that the Lord is doing just that. He's planting his people in a peaceful, prosperous kingdom under King Solomon. Then the promise was made to David, you remember, in in, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord says to David, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. And so uh, this is fulfilled under Solomon, the one who conquers your enemies and delivers you from bondage. 
is the one who will bring you as well into a state of settled peace and prosperity and glory. He is the one who is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who promises and fulfills his promises. He is the one who is the beginning and he is the end. God's redemptive work may span many, many years as it did for the people of Israel. You think about that, 480 years, that's a long time. Um, and uh, Israel's history uh, went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet God is working constantly, fulfilling his purposes in history. Though this redemptive work stretched over so long, uh, Ralph Davis puts it this way, yet it is so certain and definite that one can mark it on the kitchen calendar. It's the fourth year and the second month of Solomon's reign. I love the way he, he put that. That it is uh, a note, it's a chronological note saying, in effect, that here the promise of the Exodus is fulfilled. Here God is giving to his people a glorious kingdom of rest and peace. And it points us uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. You may feel, like the children of Israel, that the wilderness and the wandering uh, has extended for a long time. You may feel the great weight of that and the difficulty of it. And so did Israel. And there are times when it seems that we are wandering all the time, that we are insecure, that we're vulnerable to attack. And oh, how we long for a settled rest. How we long for peace and for the absence of anxiety and fear over our physical mortality. And so it is the promise here in this passage reminding us of this fact that the God who began a good work in you is the God who finishes it. He brings to completion what he begins. As God has brought his people to their promised destination under Solomon in his reign, and the many wonderful characteristics, almost Edenic in their, in their, in their beauty and in their glory, so God does for all his people, you and for me as well. He has done in Jesus Christ just that. And that's, uh, that, uh, if I could uh, quote to you from Paul in Ephesians, I think it's largely <coughs> Paul's purpose to remind the Ephesians, of the richness of the blessings that God has given to you in Christ Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Well, do the children of Israel live in joy and blessedness and peace and prosperity under Solomon's reign? Yes, they did. How much more is it true that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places? In him we have, an obta we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. 
in him also. You have heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire the possession of it. It's yours. It's yours in Christ. You just haven't acquired it, the possession of it yet in its fullness. But it is yours in him. God in his rich mercy, and because of his great love with which he loved us, though we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You've been raised up with him. And he has seated us in him and with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in glory already. All those blessings are yours in Christ Jesus. He has accomplished them in himself. He who uh, suffered humiliation, he who suffered death for your sake, now resides in the full possession of glory. And he awaits the day when you are with him, when we are with him, and we are brought to our final rest. Now you're saying, oh, I wonder when he's going to get to the text. <laughs> I just felt like that that, uh, uh, that setting needs to be made. So, so now turning to chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, and the construction of the royal palace. The, the, the palace complex was physically much larger and took longer to build um, than the uh, temple itself. The description of the buildings, however, is minimal. So there's a, there's a difference between what would appear to the eye and what appears in the text. And, and, and so you have, you, have the ar- you have the architecture of the eye, and you have the architecture of the text. In the architecture of the text, you have big description of the temple and the building of the temple and the materials that it was made from. And after that, you have a big description of the, of the furniture that uh, was in the temple. Sandwiched in the middle, you have this mention of Solomon's dwelling and these and these uh, these other buildings associated with it. Not given mere, nearly uh, the same amount of descriptive detail as with the temple, and there's a reason for that. Uh, physically, Solomon's uh, buildings, uh, his home and his buildings were larger, but the Lord's house is described in much more detail because it is more important and it is redemptively significant. Uh, Ralph Davis uh, makes this comment, worship, he draws this conclusion from that, worship is more important than government. And you know, uh, that's something for us to think about. Government deals with human laws and the application of human laws Solomon had to deal with the application of God's law to his people. And, uh, but far m- more important than political government is the worship that men give to God. Worship is more important than government. If you think about the history of our own country, there's a historian by the name of Thomas Kidd professor of history at Baylor University, and he wrote a book about George Whitfield, which he entitled, 
George Whitfield, America's spiritual founding father. So we remember that George Whitfield was a great preacher of the Great Awakening, even in our own uh, area here, along with Jonathan Edwards and other great preachers who, uh, whom the Lord used. He used their ministry and brought about a great revival a revival that preceded the founding of this nation. If you think about it, the preparation of the people of the United States spiritually was of great benefit to them in the formation of the government of the United States. The condition of the human heart in relation to God is far greater in importance than anything else. The comparison, then, of the description of Solomon's house and the description of the Lord's house points to this great fact. What I mean by that is the smallness of the description in verses 1 through 12 of Solomon compared to the greatness of the description in the other passages points to this great fact. And it was the case, as it was the case for Israel, that... (coughs) that the Lord and the worship of God is far greater in importance, so it is the case for you and for me. Our worship of God, the state of our heart toward God, is of far greater importance than merely the externals of life. But I want to look at the nearness of Solomon's house to the Lord. The nearness of Solomon's house to the Lord's house. It is the nearness of love. It is the nearness of fellowship that the Lord desired that Solomon would live in a relationship of love and fellowship with him. Solomon's complex of buildings was near the Lord's house. It was representative architecturally of that relationship that God wished to have with Solomon. And so, rather than focusing on the details of the description given, which is uh, not as detailed as the description of the temple, still... It's the significance of the location of Solomon's house that is important. It is next door. Solomon lives next door to the temple. He is the Lord's next door neighbor. In verse 12, we're told the great court had three courses of cut stone all around, and a course of cedar beams, so had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house of the Lord. Solomon's house, being near to the house of the Lord, points us to the nearness of relation between that the Lord desired between Solomon and himself. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, that all-important passage, We have the Lord's promise to David that he would raise up an offspring after him who shall come from your body 
and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And note this, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The nearness of the relationship of father and son. The message is clear. It was the Lord who established Solomon's kingdom in his grace and goodness to Solomon. Solomon's purpose was to reign as the Lord's vice regent. God was the father of Solomon, and Solomon was his anointed king. And it was Solomon's task to rule for the benefit of the people of Israel and to enforce obedience to God's commandments. He was, as it were, a mediator of covenant blessings. God's purpose to bring Israel into a state of joy and happiness and full communion and fellowship with himself. That is his purpose. With the richest participation and glory that it is possible for a creature to have. And it is symbolized by Solomon's house living next door to the Lord. I wonder if, if you guys have that uh, diagram, that picture that I gave you. Are you able to put that up? Well, so much for technology. I wanted to, uh, in the ESV, has a beautiful uh, illustration of, of the arrangement of the buildings of Solomon's house and uh, the temple. And there it is. So Solomon's house here, the temple here. And this is their reconstruction of it. You would enter here. Here is the house of the forest of Lebanon, the hall of the throne, the court, Solomon's house, Pharaoh's, house, uh, Pharaoh's uh, daughter's house, and then the stairway up into the temple being elevated above the stairway up into the temple uh, court. But you see then, Solomon was Thank you, guys. You can take that down. Solomon was the next-door neighbor of the Lord. The Lord uh, had as his purpose to bring Solomon into a, a relationship of love and communion with himself. But Solomon's relationship with the Lord, near as it was, was not near enough. Solomon will show by his life that he did not remain in a relationship of obedience to God. It wasn't stable. For God's purpose to reach its climax, it would be founded not upon any sinful human king, but the Son of God would join to himself to his own divine nature, he would join a human nature 
And that union of the human nature in the divine nature would make forever the covenant secure. Because as we read today from Romans, it is Christ's obedience accomplished for us that establishes a righteousness which he then gives to his people. And uh, that union of the divine nature and the human nature in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is described by the angel when he speaks to Mary in Luke chapter 1. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Solomon was a type. He was a sinful man, but he was a type. As Adam was a type of Christ, so Solomon was a type of Christ. A type of Christ in his resurrected glory, as you will. Uh, A type of Christ as king, who brings his people into a state of rest through his obedience. And we, through faith in Christ, are able to enter into a state of spiritual rest. We are able to know that our sins are forgiven. The enemy of our soul is defeated. And that Jesus Christ rules and reigns on his throne in glory in the true temple that is in heaven. And so the question then for us this morning, given the closeness of Solomon And the Lord, and given the fact that that closeness of that relationship points to a greater relationship, do you prize the Lord Jesus Christ tonight as the one who is your true king? Do you prize the Lord Jesus Christ who is the one who provides a secure relationship with God by his obedience He has provided for you a righteousness by his his closeness to the Father. He has provided for us the ability to be reconciled to God. And in his glory, he sets before us the glory that is ours as well in him. And that is described so wonderfully and beautifully at the end of the book of Revelation, where God dwells with his people and wipes every tear from their eye. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see in him the one means by which you can be eternally secure and you can enter into that rest of which Solomon's kingdom was a picture and a type. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we consider uh, this relationship with a human king, 
and how it uh, ended in abject failure because of the disobedience of your people. We who are disobedient, O Lord, we who, like Israel, have broken your commandments, look in faith tonight to the one who is the incarnate Son of God and look to him alone to be the one who can secure for us eternal life. And may it be, O Lord, that we look to him tonight afresh. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have a bulletin with me. So what is the...